Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for October 10th, 2021. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Join me as always. Welcome, Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome, Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. Yes, a great show tonight in about 20 minutes um, from out west in the state of um, Idaho. We have author Mark C. Johnson. Uh, written several books, but the latest one he's written is called Tuesday Night Massacre about um, a lot of the political races in 1980, focused specifically on four U.S. Senate elections. And so we're going to talk to um, Mr. Johnson, uh, you know, later on about that book and then also some Idaho politics since that in its current day, um, 40 years later, is quite fascinating as well. Uh, but until then, we have a several topics we want to hit on. And um, the first one we're going to talk about is up in the state of North Carolina. And uh, North Carolina has a um, quite controversial lieutenant governor. Um, Mark Robinson, I think he kind of surprisingly won lieutenant governor, surprisingly won the primary, surprisingly won the lieutenant governorship just, I want to say, two years ago. Uh, was quite controversial at the time, and has only created more controversy. Um, just this past week, um, he made some pretty reprehensible comments, um, you know, about um, gay and lesbian people, um, and then within the context of the public schools, um, just really something that's not only was it distasteful, it's really not where America or North Carolina seems to be at this moment. Um, but other than like on political wire and maybe in the, in the state of North Carolina, it, it really hasn't gotten as much attention as I thought it was. Um, Catherine, I, I sent y'all the comments when it got posted by tagging God on own political wire. What was your take? We should be well past this kind of language and this um, this kind of homophobia and uh, discrimination against our LGBTQ plus uh, citizens and uh, students, both young and old. It's just it's pretty loathsome that someone in an elected office would feel comfortable talking about it this way. Well, first of all, that they feel this way and also that they would feel comfortable talking about people in this way. It's, it's, I agree. He should, he should, he should be forced to resign. I agree with all well, the I, well, I'm just comments. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing. Um, if he were, you know, hosting the Emmys or, or doing something else, he might be forced to stop doing whatever that may be. If he was the CEO of a large company, he might be forced to resign. I don't think there's any way 
he gets forced to resign. Um, Catherine, do you, I mean, do you really think that he might might get forced out because of his comments? Well, he's standing firm, but I mean, people are asking, are demanding his resignation already, um, including the governor. Um, will he? He won't. He says he won't succumb, but uh, we'll have to see how much pressure he gets and from what from what from what angles. Yeah, Tim. My question to you: Do you think he would resign um, with the pushback? Well, there have been a couple of state senators call for his resignation. Uh, one of them, I believe, is actually running for the U.S. Senate, and the governor has, among others. But <laughs> he, of course, he will not resign. There's no way he's going to resign. He said these things on perfect, uh, on purpose. Uh, he knew where he was when he said it, and, and he knew the target office when he said it. Look, they want a war. They they want to fight a culture war. It energizes their base, and they think it gives them an advantage. They don't want to talk about health care plans because they don't have one. They don't have an economic plan or a foreign policy plan. They really don't want to engage in an exchange of ideas about anything going on in that state up there. Uh, they want to fight this culture war and use it to attack us all the time. And they, they're not going to stop it on their own. And we are. Yeah, well, that's the, that's the thing is, you know, maybe in the 1980s, Jesse Holmes, you know, could have said something, you know, close to this and politically survived. Um, you know, George Wallace said what he said back in the 60s. I don't even think he could say that today in Alabama um, and, and survive. I, but I do think he's, there's no way he's going to be forced out. But what will this do to the Republican Party? Um, when even what a majority of Republicans now, um, you know, think you know gay marriage should be legal or civil unions. I mean, the, the, the country is is moving clearly in a direction where this is not an issue they want to you know keep on with. This is just not where the country is at anymore. Um, I mean, it's moved so fast. I mean, from say 2005 to now. I mean, I, I don't know. They could anticipate the speed in which it's moved. And Mark Robinson, you know, Dave, behind the times, is it going to get him at the ballot box? Maybe not him, but can he get his party uh, sooner than later if he, if he, um, you know, stands so resolute on this? Tim, well, you know, in that very state, you know, Cooper is governor today because of uh, the infamous bathroom bill. You know, the attack on transgenders uh, and where they chose to, to use the bathroom. And North Carolina now, uh, you know, it's, it's still fairly conservative, more conservative than Georgia. But another thing they are is a high-tech state. Yeah. So they have a lot of educated conservative voters. I don't think this is going to... Uh, be something that they want to hear hear about, but 
this guy, this is just who he is. Whether it hurts the Republican Party or not, this this is the way this guy is. And unfortunately, the gov uh, the you know the voters knew that when they elected him. So uh, I, I think this is just a shot at energizing their base, and they, they hope our base is depressed in the in the midterms, and that this will actually help them instead of hurting them. It's a gamble, but I think it's this one that a guy like this is willing to take. I mean, Catherine, I mean, politically, where does this impact them, both 2022-2024? Well, the one thing I think that um, is different about this um, than some other, you know, comments about LGBTQ plus um, community is that he's talking specifically about the schools. And so I think there are people who might not, you know, there are people that don't think we should teach, you know, any kind of sex education in schools. So, and they might even be, you know, less conservative than you would think. They just don't want their children uh, being taught that by teachers. They want to take care of it themselves or, have them learn it in church or wherever. So I think that does put a different angle on it um, in terms of electoral politics. Um, But I still think that Tim's right, that there's, that, you know, there are a lot of high tech jobs in North Carolina and again, a higher educated uh, populace. So I, I don't think this helps him. But I do think that little that angle makes it a little bit different than if he was just attacking uh, the LGBTQ community in general. Yeah, I, and as far as high tech jobs go, I mean, companies, you know, it, it gets tricky in that companies don't seem to you know pick up and move because that's a very you know arduous, you know, costly, time-consuming process, and who knows. If the place you move to is not going to do something controversial as well, um, but I do think it could impact the company you don't have that you know you're never you, you didn't know you didn't get. Um, and so, well, and I also think, it and I don't know if voters think that far ahead. Well, it does. It does impact yeah. recruiter recruiting top level candidates for jobs. Hmm. Right, so yeah. people well, are I'm like, I'm not like, moving there. I'm not moving to that backwoods, that backwoods state that has, you know, yeah, elected and, and officials that talk like that. that. And, and he's and he's caught, and he'll he'll shine a light. It doesn't necessarily work with these kind of comments because I don't think people look at North Carolina that way. People look at North Carolina closer to Virginia and I guess Georgia than they would say Alabama or Tennessee. And their um, cosmopolitan makeup. I remember one time we had, I believe it was Dr. Michael Bitzer on the uh, show, and he talked about how um, North Carolina, the Republican voters are very, very lockstep to the right, and the Democratic voters are very much resolute Democrats. There's very little middle in uh, North Carolina, and, and this could fly into, um, you know, how they're trying to use wedge mm-hmm. issues. Or he just feels this way, and he said it, and he didn't think through the political calculus 
one way or the other. I mean, this is the kind of guy well, that's possible. I don't know that he is playing three-dimensional chess all the time either. Um, he may just say what he thinks, and, you know, it's worked for him. And, you know, last time he was on the ballot, and he assumes it will work again. So, um, you know, we shall see. I, I have a feeling that more of this will come out one would think um, as time moves on. Well, let's, you know, try to get to another story quickly. Uh, before we talk uh, talk to our guests, and this is something that I haven't wanted to talk to a while. Talk about a while. I had seen a little bit about it, but then in the conversation, which is a really interesting website that's written by academics all over the country and really all over the world, but the U.S. site, and it talked about the Greg Gutfield show on Fox News, and um, it even had clips from the show, if you will. Uh, so I actually watched the clips so I could, you know, speak about it in, uh, I guess, a more fair way. But when this show debuted, it debuted as the number one show on cable TV with like 1.67 million viewers. And then the audience has only grown to where it is actually getting better ratings than Stephen Colbert, better ratings than Jimmy Kimmel, better ratings than um, Jimmy Fallon. Um, it's the highest many nights, not every night, but many nights, it's the highest rated show on all of television. And I watch the clips, and it's not because it's conservative. It's just not funny. I mean, it's the, the clips that were shown, and I don't think he tried to pick out unfunny clips the author. They just weren't funny. Um, so I don't understand why, even if you're this rock rib conservative, why you don't either, A, find something recorded, something non-political, or just go to bed other than watch some unfunny show and these kind of numbers. Um, Tim, your take on all this. Well, first of all, um, this week he was number two. Uh, oh, okay. I was that most right, behind Col- right behind Colbert, uh, according to Nielsen, and then he's well ahead of both Jimmy Fallon and Jimmy Kimmel. Um He's winning younger viewers. That's an important demographic late at night. Uh, a bigger percentage of the viewing audience is, is, is a little bit younger than it is, say, in some primetime shows, especially the college crowd, young adult crowd. Uh, older viewers are split among the others, I would think, but I do have to give him credit. I mean, on Fox News, of all things, he is beating the major networks, and staying right with another one. Um, I, and I also give Republicans credit for this. They stick with, with their own guy. Um, there's another thing. He does not have any conservative competition at that yeah. time of night. He is the only game in town, and there are literally people, and I know a lot of people, they've told me this themselves, especially in this area, who keep Fox News on, on television 24-7 unless they're watching a ball game. So they, they just leave it. They're all through the, the prime time hour, all of that. They don't watch many networks. They just leave it on Fox News, and they'll leave it on there late at night, too, even when they go to bed, and it's on his show. But uh, I, I got I to hand it to the guy. He's... Uh, he he he's really getting something done, and on of all things, a cable news uh, network. 
yeah, I, I think you're right, Tim, about the people that just watch nothing but Fox News. I'm not even sure they're watching sports anymore because they're so, you know, triggered by, you know, anything an athlete might do. They've, they've turned off from sports as well. Um, Kevin, your take on Greg Gutfield and this show that defies, you know, good sense. Well, I think uh, Tim makes a couple of really good points. And also, I mean, he's absolutely right. There's no, uh, there's no conservative comedian or, you know, talk show variety show on late at night. Jimmy Kimmel, uh, Jimmy Fallon, David Colbert, Stephen Colbert are all, you know, clearly to the left of, you know, of center. Jimmy Fallon less so. He tries to be very, you know, sort of middle of the road. But Kimmel and Colbert, there's no question where their, you know, loyalties lie. So being the only show in town for conservatives is a good point. Also, um, I think that, and while this doesn't really play into ratings because they're only looking at the people that are watching, but, you know, people are so... Um, you know, everybody's watch. Like I don't, I rarely watch uh, television that's live right now. I watch, you know, things that are on my DVR or um, streaming, like Netflix and Discovery or um, Prime. I mean, there's just so many options that I think it's really hard to draw conclusions about um, viewing if you're just looking at what's on uh, regular network and cable TV, because there's so many options. Yeah, I think that the the audience is so fragmented like it never has been before, and maybe it is that people that are more middle apolitical, middle-of-the-road, liberal, are more likely to – um, stream. I know, like, I don't even watch any real cable news at all, and I really don't see even clips that much on YouTube. I've gotten to where CBS Morning News comes up on my YouTube feed, and a lot of those are stories. Those aren't talking heads. Um, and so I don't know how it does in streaming. Every once in a while, I see or hear about something on, like, Jimmy Kimmel, a little bit he'll do, and it's not always political. Um, and then Stephen Colbert, um, sometimes as well, and I wonder if his YouTube or, or online streaming numbers, how they compare as well, because I think a lot of times getting content viewed on YouTube has become much more of a um, factor. I think The Daily Show, which is also on at that time with Trevor Noah, I think a ton of their content gets streamed um, through YouTube and other sources, than it does people actually watching at 11 o'clock or 10 o'clock if they're central or, I guess, specific time. I want to transition now to our guest and welcome into the show for the first time, author and political uh, commentator Mark Johnson. Welcome, Mr. Johnson. Thank you, David. Good to be with you. Thanks for the chance. Oh, yeah, great to have you on. Well, uh, Mr. Johnson, since it's the first time you've been on the show, where we want to start off with is just tell our listeners uh, about your life and your work. 
Well, thank you. Uh, let's see. Um, I uh, started out my work life as a reporter. I uh, worked in television news primarily in Idaho uh, from the late 70s until uh, the mid-80s. Uh, did a daily public television show that was broadcast statewide for most of that period of time, covered a lot of politics, covered the state legislature, was a moderator of political debates, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, 1986, I left that job and went to work as the campaign press secretary for a guy who had been governor of Idaho uh, in the 70s, uh, Cecil Andrus. He then uh, became uh, Jimmy Carter's interior secretary for the four years of the Carter administration, came back to Idaho and was intent on running for governor again in 1986. I joined his campaign. Uh, He won the governorship for the third time, as it turned out, in 1986. I became a press secretary to the governor, and then after his fourth uh, victory in 1990, I was chief of staff for most of the last four years that he was governor. Remarkable guy, uh, greatest experience of my life to work for him. He was governor of Idaho uh, for more than 14 years, elected four times. I like to say he was elected four times in three different decades, the 70s, 80s, and 90s, quite an accomplishment. And uh, I'm I'm a little biased, needless to say, but arguably uh, one of the two or three greatest interior secretaries in the nation's history and a wonderful, wonderful guy. Uh, After that, I went into uh, uh, a business venture with a couple of friends of mine. We had a regional uh, public affairs consulting firm. I worked out of Boise for 20 years or so, doing a lot of crisis communication, a few campaigns. Uh, and uh, since retirement, uh, I've been trying to write uh, political history. Yes, and I, I, I didn't even know that was called retirement when you put out as many books as you have. In recent years, um, what made you decide to uh, start political writing like you have? Well, I, you know, I came to the realization late in life that uh, my real calling probably was uh, political history. I studied history in college as well as journalism. Really have always been fascinated with American political history, particularly 20th century political history. Uh, so it was something that I've always been interested in. I'm an avid uh, reader and collector of political biographies and that sort of thing. So it was maybe a natural extension of my uh, my life as a journalist and a political operative in a way to gravitate to try to write some political history. And it's been great fun. Uh, I wish I would have done it uh, a lot earlier in my life, but I'm trying to make up for lost time. Yes, never too late to start a new project. Um, well, Indeed. I've got some more questions, but first I'm going to be fair to my co-host. I'm going to pass it to Tim Shifflett first to ask you some questions about the book. I think Catherine has a few questions about Idaho politics, and then I may I may have questions about both. I, I won't always have my right. Um, Tim? All right. Fire away. Hi, Tim. Yeah. How are you, sir? Uh, thank you for being on with us. You know, delighted uh, to be here. Thank you. The there were, as you know, um, a lot of senators, a lot, lot of 
A lot of Democrats running for the U.S. Senate that year lost in 1980. It was a a tough year. Why did you pick the four particular senators that you picked in the writing of this book? Well, I really wanted, uh, Tim, to write about uh, the rise of the political, independent political expenditure committee, uh, mm-hmm. i.e. committees. The, you know, they're ubiquitous in American politics now. Every Senate election in every state features the uh, involvement of usually millions of dollars in uh, independent expenditures. But it was a uh, virtually a brand new phenomenon in the late 1970s. 1980, mm-hmm. uh, a group called NICPAC, the National Conservative Political Action Committee, which was kind of the tip of the spear, in my view, of uh, operating these independent expenditure campaigns, targeted, uh, initially they targeted six incumbent Democrats that they were going to go after in 1980. They pared back their efforts to really only concentrate on the four that I write about in Tuesday Night Massacre. Tuesday Night, mm-hmm. Tuesday Night Massacre referring to November 4th, 1980, which, as you correctly say, was a bloodbath for Democrats. But I concentrated on those four because they were, um, I think, sort of a precursor of the politics that we have now where independent expenditure campaigns that go after um, – you know, the character of of candidates uh, spread a lot of misinformation or downright uh, mistruths about a lot of issues and candidates. Really, that sort of had its launching pad, if you will, in 1980. And the guys that I write about, John Culver from Iowa, Birch Bayh of Indiana, George McGovern of South Dakota, and Frank Church of Idaho, didn't really see what was happening until it was too late to try to effectively respond to it. But that's uh, a long answer to your question. Those are the, that's the reason I picked those four guys. They were the mm-hmm. good targets. And, and would this scenario with these four Senate races have occurred if uh, Ronald Reagan was not the GOP nominee in 1980, or did that really matter? You know, I don't think it really did matter. I think that the, there was a – for the forces of what – Uh, has been called and I call in the book the new right it was a happy uh, coincidence that Reagan was running somebody very uh, compatible with uh, these new right groups and what they wanted to try to do to transform the Republican Party uh, get them get rid of the moderates in the party make it a more ideological party so it was a Mm -hmm. happy coincidence in a way that uh, Reagan was the presidential candidate all of these guys that were working uh, in the NICPAC world were hugely supportive of Reagan's candidacy. Many of them had been supportive of his candidacy in 1976 when he ran against Gerald mm-hmm. Ford in the Republican primaries and it actually came pretty close. So mm-hmm. um, it, it, it added some additional steam to their effort that Reagan, uh, an ideological soulmate in many ways, was uh, at the top of the ticket. And NICPAC, for example, this Independent uh, Political Action Committee, uh, really spent the vast amount of money that it spent, the vast majority of the money it spent, on Reagan's campaign. Uh, a lot of it spent in the South. Mm-hmm. Now, Roger Stone, who, who we all know and don't love nowadays, was one of the participants in this 
for want of a better term to use, I'm going to say scorched earth style of campaign against these four senators. Um, was Nick Pack something of a throwback to similar campaigning that we had seen earlier from guys like Richard Nixon and, and Joe McCarthy, or, or was this taken even to another level? Well, I think it is a throwback in a lot of ways to um, 1980 was hardly the beginning of uh, really brutal negative campaigning. It's been a function or a factor in American politics for as long as there has been a country. Um, what I think happened in that 1980 campaign and even a little earlier in the late 70s was sort of the weaponization, if you will, of political money and the nationalization of Senate campaigns, whereby uh, every election became a referendum on which political party was going to control the United States Senate. Um, so in a way, it was an extension, as you suggest, Tim, of uh, the McCarthy-type tactics, the, the Goldwater uh, campaign in 1964, Nixon's kind of... Uh, you know, silent majority kind of campaigns in the in the 19, late 1960s and 1972. But um, you had the added element in 1980 of the independent expenditure effort, which allowed mm -hmm. money to be raised all over the country in an unlimited amounts and spent uh, without much regulation or much oversight in a way that was, uh, I think, I argue, very uh, very damaging uh, to the Senate as an institution and also um, very damaging to sort of the notion that there's any kind of uh, honor in politics that requires people to be held accountable for lying about their political opponents. You know, Roger Stone, you mentioned Roger Stone. He was one of the three original founders of NICPAC in 1972 um, in you know a, a really by his own estimate a, a, a sleazy political operative and he mm -hmm. brought a lot of those nixon type tactics uh to nick mm -hmm. pack and uh carrie dolan who uh, became sort of the face of the organization uh really was very good at uh, sort of weaponizing those those tactics i quote stone in the book for example as talking about negative political tv commercials and he says of course everybody says that they they don't approve of negative tv commercials but uh he says you know a political strategist's job is to exploit the negative in memorable ads for the purpose of winning votes the trick is to be able to engage in that kind of a campaign without being perceived as running a negative campaign so that was mm -hmm. you know, some of the brilliance of what they did they were able to be you know, extremely negative against these incumbent Democrats, distort their record, attack their character, misrepresent their records in many ways, and basically get off scot-free because the uh, challenge, the Republican challengers were, you know, sort of above the fray. They could even, as they mm -hmm. did in a number of states, they could uh, disown Nick Pack's tactics as Mm -hmm. um, Dan Quayle did in Indiana, for example, and mm -hmm. uh, Chuck Grassley tried to do in Iowa. But uh, the impact of the negativity uh, was was profound. 
Yeah, what, what I know you've heard this argument too made about this particular year. Uh, some folks have said that these particular four senators were uh, Kennedy era liberals. Uh, their time was getting past them that they were representing increasingly conservative states, and they might have lost anyway. Is, is there any merit to that line of reasoning? Well, sure there is. I mean, uh, on the one hand, uh, as you suggested earlier, 1980 was a darn tough year to be a Democrat uh, uh-huh. anywhere, on the, uh, anywhere on the ballot. Uh, Carter was unpopular at the top of the ticket. Uh, you know, inflation was an issue. There was still a bad taste in many people's mouths about uh, the energy crisis and gas shortages. The Iran hostage crisis was ongoing during the entire campaign. So there was a stiff headwind blowing against uh, Democrats and Democratic incumbents in particular. It was a great republic. It was a great year to be a Republican. And you had the popularity of Reagan at the top of the ticket. Yeah, I can't to, to let your this segment. Point, though, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, uh, I can't let this segment go by without asking you about Jerry Falwell and the Moral Majority. Were they also prominent players in what happened? Uh, unquestionably, they were prominent players. Um, my uh, my analysis and what I write about in the book is that NICPAC sort of served as the clearinghouse for a lot of these new right groups, including Falwell's Moral Majority, uh-huh. uh, Phyllis Schlafly's Eagle Forum. All of these mm-hmm. groups uh, played in all of these states, and but but NICPAC was kind of the organizer. They were kind of the the intellectual heft, if you will that helped put together the coalitions and figured out the messaging and, uh, you know, sort of drove the strategy, if you will, about how to attack these incumbents. So, yeah, for the first time really in 1980, the moral majority emerged as a real force in American politics. And, uh, you know, in states like Idaho and South Dakota, where uh, they were able to make a major, major headway on the issue of abortion, for example. They really mm-hmm. distorted the records of the incumbents, but they did it very effectively, uh, you know, putting a kind of an evangelical Christian uh, sheen on that issue that really damaged the Democrats. I do want to say one more thing about your question, though, about whether these guys were, you know, sort of representing the Kennedy era of uh, liberal politics. There is some truth to that, no question about it. But what I mm-hmm. what I try to argue in the book is that uh, they were replaced, the Democratic incumbents who lost in 1980, and you could carry this beyond the four that I look at to, to include guys like Gaylord Nelson in Wisconsin. Uh, the, uh, uh, Warren Magnuson, Scoop uh, uh, Magnuson, Warren Magnuson in Washington State also lost in 1980. All of these guys were uh, of a different vintage, if you will, of Senate uh, members of the U.S. Senate. They had long records of real accomplishment on the national stage, and they were replaced by people who essentially went to the Senate uh, to vote no on things, to be against government. 
to not use the power of the federal government and the power and by power I mean you know the organizing power of the federal government to address big national issues and guys like Frank Church and George McGovern and Birch Bayh uh, were of a generation where they went to Washington because they wanted to do things. They wanted to pass legislation. You know, Birch Bayh wanted to go to Washington, D.C. Uh, to be an expert on the, con- on the Constitution. He wound up writing two amendments to the Constitution. He's the father of Title IX, which has been so important uh, to women in higher education, particularly as it relates to athletics, but uh, general uh, efforts to provide equal opportunity for women in higher education. So these guys had a real record of accomplishment, and they're replaced by people, as I said, who basically had an entirely different view about uh, what politics was all about, and they were going to be, you know, put a rock on the no button, as they say. Mm -hmm. And a final question before I send it over to Catherine. The... Uh, lessons that you drew from a study of these four Senate races, and in particular what has led to today, there, there's just no way to view these lessons as, as optimistic, are they, at all? You know, Tim, I've taken to calling, my, calling myself, uh, and I hope I am accurate in, when I say this, a, an informed pessimist about our politics. <laughs> uh, uh-huh. You know, I, I, uh, I'm pretty despondent about the, the way things are going, and the trend lines for the future don't look a whole lot more promising to me. And I think, again, uh, and I try to make the case in the book, that you have to start somewhere to try to understand how we uh, have ended up in the place where we are with the so polarized political environment uh, the totally tribal nature of American politics now um, and, you know, fights in Congress on a repeated basis over raising the debt ceiling and just you know, sort of the, the basic blocking and tackling of running the federal government become these huge polarizing partisan issues. So, yeah, I don't see a whole lot of reason to be very optimistic about American politics. It's going to take a recommitment on a whole bunch of on the part of a whole bunch of Americans to a better kind of uh, engagement in the political process if we're going to find a better way uh, forward. Well said, sir, and I thank you for that. And at this time, I'm going to send it over to Catherine. Catherine? Thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Uh, I just have to say that talking about that 1980 election just gives me PTSD. I remember that night (laughs) so well. Oh, yeah. I was uh, I was working in the polls all day that day, so I hadn't seen any reports on what ha- was happening. And I was a huge Jimmy Carter fan, still am. So glad to share the state with him. And uh, I got home and heard the news, and I, I was just devastated. It was a devastating night for all of us, for all of us Democrats, especially those of us who are really hardcore Democrats. Anyway, so. Well, I thank you for that. I also am, like, uh, reeling from that, those memories. Um, so thank you. I, I really appreciate that um, interpretation of that night um, or that election. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, Idaho politics. So lately you've been in the news <laughs> with this crazy <laughs> lieutenant governor. Like, what in the world? 
is uh, is happening there? Like, what what drives your lieutenant governor to feel like they can just draw up executive orders and do anything they want when the governor leaves the state? What what's going on there? Well. You know, Catherine, uh, COVID is running rampant in Idaho. The hospitals are operating under emergency uh, crisis care standards. Uh, ICUs are overflowing. It's uh, it's a it's a real time tragedy. Uh, Fifty three Idahoans died of COVID nineteen on Friday, uh, which oh was goodness. as many as died in the entire state of New York uh, on the same day. And New York is what 19 million population, and Idaho is not quite two million. So it, uh, I'm using that example to say that crazy is running as rampant as COVID in the state. Um, the you have to understand a couple of things that that are not necessarily unique to Idaho, but have played out in a particular way in Idaho. The governor and lieutenant governor don't run as a ticket; they don't run as a team. So they run separately. So you can often end up, and we have historically uh, in the past, ended up with uh, a governor and a lieutenant governor who don't exactly get on the same page. My old boss, a Democrat, all the time he was uh, um, governor that I worked for him at least, he had a Republican lieutenant governor. Uh, So he had to be careful when he left the state. Uh, not to leave too many uh, unattended uh, pieces of business around, but he never had to deal with a with a lieutenant governor who was actually out to sabotage uh, the governor's agenda, and that's what we have now. Uh, so the incumbent lieutenant governor uh, was elected uh, on the basis of winning a Republican primary with about 28% of the vote in a very crowded field. So she emerged kind of from nowhere, a backbencher in the state legislature, uh, to become lieutenant governor and a heartbeat away from the governorship. And as uh, uh, a guy that I know really well, a former Republican attorney general in Idaho, former chief justice of the state Supreme Court, Jim Jones, said the other day, she's just, a, she's just an idiot. Uh, and <laughs> there's, no, there's no better way well, to, we, uh, we to characterize her than that. Around here. Yeah, well, it's not unique to Idaho for sure, but uh, uh, the state seems to have uh, a preponderance for advancing them to positions of responsibility. <laughs> well, that's that, and it's I mean, it's 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 funny, um, you know, it's but it's tragic when you look at the how it ha- the impact that it has on during during a crisis like this. Yeah, and you know, um, and- Catherine, the, the other thing that's happened is uh, Governor Little, uh, who is by by anybody's estimate would be called a very conservative Republican, he's been pulled farther to the right now as a result of these shenanigans from uh, the state legislature and the, the lieutenant governor. So he's he's acting more and more, uh, you know, like a like a born-again Trumper in terms of the way he is approaching the job just on – and, you know, the reason he was out of state last week uh, that allowed her to have an opportunity to, uh, you know, to pull her grandstand stunt was he was doing his own grandstanding down on the uh, Texas-Mexico border, uh, showing up with a handful of other Republican governors 
uh, you know, to say, have some performance in a press conference uh, on the border uh, highlighting the failure of the Biden administration uh, to deal with a migrant crisis, as though, you know, he had anything to do with it. Uh, Idaho does have a border with a foreign country. It's not Mexico. <laughs> Well, my next question is about um, sort of the general political, um, you know, how, how, I mean, obviously it's your, your state is dominated now by Republicans, but how is the Democratic Party doing in Idaho? Well, I have to say I, I need to just correct one little factual impression. I actually uh, don't live in Idaho anymore. My wife and I, when oh. we retired, relocated to the Oregon coast, but I still write a weekly column oh, nice. for the Lewiston newspaper, and I keep close tabs on the state's politics, so I can't really claim to be in Idaho any longer, although I lived there for 40 years. So uh, I'm pretty steeped in the state's politics, but I don't want to leave the impression that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, able to vote uh, for or against any of these characters. But you asked the question, how's the Democratic Party? Well, uh, you may have heard that uh, the uh, Northwest salmon, an iconic uh, species, is uh, on the verge of extinction in the Pacific Northwest. Some would say the Idaho Democratic Party is at the same place uh, on the verge of extinction. They haven't won a statewide race uh, in many years. Uh, there was a time when I worked for Governor Andrus and after 1990 when uh, uh, three of the five uh, statewide elected officials were Democrats. Uh, Democrats and Republicans had an even split in the state Senate, um, and uh, they controlled two of the state's uh, congressional seats. So that's how far things have fallen in the intervening 30 years to where you know, there's a handful of Democrats in the state legislature now, no elected uh, statewide officials, and the party really is uh, is limping along on fumes. They do have a new energetic state party chair who is really trying to organize from the ground up, which is what it's going to be required to try to get back to relevance. They're going to have to get serious about winning elections again at the courthouse level, uh, pick off a few more legislative seats, find some good candidates to run for some of these jobs and take advantage of the, of the craziness that the Republican party now has made its brand, frankly, in Idaho. You know, I have a, I have a saying that I've used many times before that Democrats in Idaho only get ahead when Republicans screw up in some way. Um, my boss won uh, election in 1970 for the first time because the Republicans nominated a real nitwit to be their candidate for governor. And it gave him an opportunity to show people what he could do. Same thing with Frank Church and uh, when he was first elected in the uh, 1950s. He was running against a really um, troubled, difficult uh, Republican incumbent. So in almost every case in modern times, uh, the Republican Party has had to you know, create uh, an opening that Democrats could seize upon. Hopefully... Uh, we're getting close to that point again where the Democratic Party can take advantage of some of this craziness uh, from the right. Yeah, well, I think that's always that's often the case. And I, I, I often say about Georgia is that you, you just have to be prepared. You know, you have to have a candidate. You have to 
have people prepared so that when a Republican or, or wh- whoever you're running, um, whether whatever party you are, so that when they make a mistake, you have a candidate right there, ready to go, qualified, and um, prepared. So I think that's yep. C. Uh, Sanders, good. C. Sanders used to say, you know, you have to get good candidates. He used to say uh, all the time, you can't win a horse race with a dog. You have to have right. a good <laughs> candidate. Uh, you have to have somebody who you know, sort of uh, fits the state, who is a- able to talk the language uh, that, you know, at least 50% of the voters are going to be interested in uh, responding to. And Democrats have struggled in so many Western states to come up with credible candidates who are able to, uh, to walk the walk. The guy that I say is the model for the Western Democrat is John Tester from Montana, the guy is authentic as the day is long. Uh, he's a legitimate dirt farmer. Uh, he talks bluntly and candidly. He doesn't take any BS off of anybody. He is the quintessential Western Democrat. And, uh, frankly, if Democrats want to be competitive in some of these red uh, Western states, they're going to have to uh, find more John Testers. Well, thank you very much. I'm passing this back to David for final questions. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. Delighted to visit with you, Catherine. Thank you. Yes. um, Well, I didn't know that you still didn't live in the state. I know you do such a great job on Twitter reporting on Idaho that I just assumed and bad on my part. I thought if both the governor and lieutenant governor, the state, you could write some uh, executive (laughs) orders. Um, (laughs) I'd give it a shot. I'd give it a shot. (laughs) Yeah. I do think that is so crazy, really, in any state, not just Idaho, but any state. If the governor leaves the state, the lieutenant governor can start writing orders. I mean, I can leave my the state, and I can control my thermostat from my phone. I mean, you know, it's it's not like you're so out of pocket you can't handle the affairs of the state, and it's not like it's going to get attacked. And if it weren't, you couldn't, you know, rush back to the state if you're in the continental United States that quickly, so I, I find that kind of baffling uh, on yeah, the surface. Yeah, well, this provision in this, yeah, it, it is baffling, and it's a legacy, frankly, of the days when we didn't have cell phones or maybe even uh, telephones that were uh, readily accessible to traveling politicians. So the technology and the reality of the modern world has made it kind of a, a you know, a relic, I guess, of uh, the 1890s or something. If you have time for one quick story, I'll tell you how uh, this provision of the state constitution played out when Governor Anders was in office. He had uh, left the state for a national governor's meeting in Washington, D.C. His lieutenant governor was a guy named Butch Otter, who subsequently went on to become Uh governor, a Republican. And uh, Butch was, uh, you know, a Republican, but he was really, in his heart of hearts, a libertarian. And he believed in, uh, you know, virtually as little government as you could possibly get away with. So he's acting governor while Anderson's in Washington, D.C. one time during the legislative session. Legislature passed a piece of legislation that uh, was designed to comply with the requirements of, uh, you know, the drinking age related to uh, being able to drive. And he vetoed that legislation, saying the federal government is not going to dictate to the state of Idaho how we can, uh, con- you know, construct our laws related to the drinking age. 
And uh, he called up Andrus. I remember this distinctly. I was in the governor's uh, presence when he took the call from the lieutenant governor, and he said, I'm thinking about vetoing this piece of legislation. And Andrus says, Butch, do you really want to do that? I mean, think about the consequences because your party is not your, your party passed this legislation through the legislature. Do you really want to do that? If you do, go ahead, uh, and I'll uh, come home and uh, help you clean up the mess. Well, he got roundly criticized by fellow Republicans for vetoing that piece of legislation. The legislature promptly overrode his veto. So, you know, it was, it was some of us still remember that story and the, the black eye that it uh, that it caused for the then lieutenant governor and uh, the current lieutenant governor has got two black eyes after what she did recently. Yes, and I'm not mistaken, uh, the drinking age is tied to federal highway funding, or at least initially it was, so that would create a whole other mess. Um, exactly well, I right. Ask that, about that, one of that, the was, that was the issue, yeah. That was exactly the issue. Yes, and I wanted to ask about one of the senators in the book. Um, I would have been, I guess, not even one when uh, George McGovern um, lost for the presidency, but he was the national leader of the party just eight years before he got defeated. But he did lose pretty soundly in the 72 election. How much do you think the 72 result on a national level played a role in his um, 1980 Senate race? Well, I think it played a, lo- uh, it played a big role, David. And as Tim was suggesting earlier, uh, McGovern sort of became, after 1972, the face of the progressive left-leaning Democratic Party at that point. He was kind of the personification of, uh, you know, left-wing Democratic politics in the minds of many people. And South Dakota, uh, like Idaho, like these other states, uh, has never been, uh, you know, uh, on the forefront of uh, progressive liberal politics. So it definitely uh, hurt him. He subsequently won uh, a Senate race again in 1974 against a pretty attractive Republican opponent, but he was clearly weakened by the fact that he was, you know, perceived by South Dakota voters as being sort of the face of the emerging liberal uh, brand attached to the National Democratic Party, and it, it clearly hurt him. Yes, and I wanted to ask about one more senator that wasn't one of the four you feature, but you mentioned him early in the book. Um, in Georgia, Herman Talmadge lost um, in 1980 to Mac Mattingly. Um, how was his race different? Well, I think his race was different, and you, you uh, folks in the southeast would have maybe a better uh, historical perspective on it than I do. But I think, uh, you know, by, by 1980, uh, Talmadge was uh, among the last of the sort of hard-over segregationists. Uh, anti-civil rights uh, senator from in the Democratic Party. He had also been troubled by kind of a personal scandal, as I recall, related to uh, a divorce. Uh, and all of that kind of caught up with him uh, in a year that, as I said earlier, was a tough year uh, to be a Democrat almost any place in the country. And maybe it was a, uh, a preview, if you will, of the fact that uh, so much of the South was turning – uh, more and more to the Republican Party, and uh, 
I'd like to think, you guys tell me if I'm wrong about this, I'd like to think that maybe that pendulum has started to swing back a little bit, particularly in the great state of Georgia. It has, and definitely um, the, the, it's in a post-segregation era, nothing like a Herman Talmadge. Um, well, I want to leave the interview with this. If people have heard about this book or any other books and they want to order them, how, what's the way they can find out more about your uh, political books? Well, um, I have a website. It's markcjohnson.com, Mark with a C, M-A-R-C, middle initial C, johnson.com. Uh, the University of Oklahoma is my publisher, I'm happy to say. Uh, their website uh, always has uh, great books, and they uh, have published some really great things on American politics in the last many years. You can usually get it uh, from – I know you can get it from Amazon or Barnes & Noble, um, and I uh, hope uh, that some of your listeners might be interested in uh, – looking at Tuesday Night Massacre, four Senate elections and the radicalization of the Republican Party. Yes, sir. Well, well very interesting book, and, and I read portions of it, and I'd like to either read or listen to more in the future. But uh, thanks so much for coming on, and if you keep writing books, we may keep having you back to talk about all these de-writings. <laughs> well, thank you, David. I really would appreciate that. Uh, been great fun to speak with you the three of you tonight, and uh, I hope I do have the chance to come back sometime. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Yes. You too. That was Mark C. Johnson, uh, author extraordinaire of Oregon, but longtime resident of Idaho. When you call a place home and you grow up and live in there, you're always going to be about it. Uh, But his book, Tuesday Night Massacre, um, highly recommend it from what I've uh, been able to take in uh, both tonight and um, preparing for the show. And he has other books, too. I believe one about Burton K. Wheeler, which was a um, politician in the West, and, and there may be other books as well. So check out his website. Well, um, we're getting to the end of the show, but one thing. We let off the show talking about a lieutenant governor um, from North Carolina that's done some radical things. We talked with our guest, Mark Johnson, about a lieutenant governor that's done some radical things. But we don't think all lieutenant governors do radical things. And next week, um, we're going to have a lieutenant governor on the show as our guest um, here in Georgia, Jeff Duncan, who has a new book out, uh, GOP 2.0, about kind of a different kind of GOP than we're seeing under Donald Trump. He's going to come out and lay that vision out for his book. Next week on the show, so even though we've talked about two radical lieutenant governors, we don't want anybody to have, you know, in, in Lieutenant Governor Duncan's camp to hear our show and think we're just, you know, against all 50 of them. By no means is that the case. Um, but until then, been a great show. Good night, everybody. Good night, Good night guys. Y'all. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime ever.